Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to episode 59 of Podcast Royal, where we chat about who is taking over for the queen at Royal Mondi service this week and which new role the crown is casting for. Big hint, it's someone we talk about on the show all the time. Plus, Megan says farewell to Mayhew, one of her royal patronages. Princess Anne is on tour for Her Majesty, and we've got a juicy interview about royal scandals past and present, all right here on Podcast Royal. Welcome back to episode 59 of Podcast Royal. I'm leading with this because I don't want to forget to talk about it. I binged The Ultimatum and I (laughs) loved it. Have you started? Okay, so I have started episode one, but I've had some distractions this week. So um, I am going to get through it. I've just um, haven't haven't gotten all the way through yet. So am I correct that the final episodes roll out Wednesday of this week, the day our podcast drops. Yes. And that, that is maddening to me because I finished the show on either Saturday or Sunday, I think it was Sunday. And the, it just leaves you with a huge cliffhanger. So I will say that episode one, I was like, okay, this show's all right. But by episode two, I, I, I couldn't stop it. And I am in love with Colby and he needs to take away the cowboy hat. Listeners will understand if they've watched the show, but he is so cute. He is a better looking version of one of my ex-boyfriends from a few years ago. <laughs> and he is, oh my gosh, he's, it, it's just, it's such a good show. I think it's better than love is blind. And I'll say that confidently. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm excited to get more into it. Um, so I'll share my thoughts next time we uh, record for, okay. For well, it's, just, it's, just, well, I say it's a spoiler free zone, but it's not over yet. So like you said, uh, we're uh, as ever recording this on Tuesday night, the final two episodes are coming. I think they're the final two are coming out on Wednesday, the 13th. So we shall see what happens, but Other than the ultimatum, what are you into this week? Well, so I'm sure I've talked about this before in the podcast, but I have a big sweet tooth when it comes to, um, you know, my guilty pleasures and what I like to snack on. I love to grab something sweet. So um, if our listeners have not heard of this, or if you haven't, Rachel, definitely check this out. Not, not hashtag, not an ad, Um, but (laughs) I came across. It was an ad. (laughs) I came across these treats in the grocery store in the refrigerator section. Um, The brand is Hail Mary, and they make these little, uh, really just like one bite little desserts. Um, And they're like little cups. And so they've got like a key lime pie, a Meyer lemon, a chocolate almond butter. They're so good. You keep them in the fridge. So they're cold and they really do taste like, I mean, my favorite is probably the Meyer lemon. It's like a, um, like a lemon pie, but what I love about it is, um, they're vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, paleo friendly. So they're made with ingredients like almond flour, coconut oil, 
Um, and I think the, the lemon ones are like five grams of sugar for each little bite. So, Mm. um, just a fun dessert to have on hand in the refrigerator, especially this time of year as the weather warms up. Key lime and lemon are always super refreshing. Mm-hmm. And I am embarrassed to admit how many I have eaten the past few weeks. Um, <laughs> I definitely canceled out any benefit from low sugar because I have had more than my fair share. <laughs> they sound delicious, especially I love key lime. So I'll have to check that out for sure. Definitely do. So as so what for what you- I'm into this week, um, It is celebration season for the British royal family. This time of year is just where all the birthdays are, all the anniversaries are. Unfortunately, some tragic events too. We just, of course, passed Philip's one-year anniversary of his passing. But in just the span of a month, we have Her Majesty turning 96 on April 21st. We've got Prince Louis turning four on April 23rd. The Cambridges will celebrate their 11th anniversary on April 29th. Princess Charlotte turns seven, May 2nd. Archie turns three, May 6th. And then the Sussexes rounded out celebrating their fourth anniversary on May 19th. So there's just a lot to be thankful for this next month and a lot of birthdays and anniversaries and just a lot of happy occasions. And I'm, of course, especially cognizant of how special it is that we have another birthday with Her Majesty. 96 is a great age to reach and we hope for many more. Definitely. Wow. It is such a big celebration month in April, Uh, but April's a great month, really, no matter where you are in the world. I feel like it's just a pretty Mm -hmm. time of year. It really is. And save for the pollen that we're experiencing down in the South, which we were just talking about a moment ago offline. This is my favorite time of year when it turns from winter to spring and it's just beautiful outside. And when the pollen is done doing what the pollen is doing, then I just want to live outside. So it is, it's a happy time. And so we're embracing it. And uh, we had a monster episode last week. We're not going to do that to y'all again this week. So let's go ahead and hop right on into the Royal Rundown, shall we? Yeah, definitely. So we found out this week that the queen will miss an important Easter tradition. She announced she will not be in attendance at the Royal Maundy service at St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle on April 14th and will be sending Charles and Camilla in her place. The service takes place the Thursday ahead of Easter annually, and Her Majesty distributes specially minted coins known as Mondi money to recognize people 70 years old and older for service to their communities. So this year, Charles will distribute the Mondi money in his first time ever filling in for his mother in this capacity. Though he did attend the Royal Mondi service twice before in 1962 and 1968, this will be Camilla's first time at the service. I just think that's striking that Charles hasn't even attended the service since 1968. That is I know. before his investiture. So that's that's wild. But um, also in Her Majesty related news in 2019, many of you have probably read this book. Angela Kelly, who is the Queen's longtime stylist, dressmaker and friend, released her book, The Other Side of the Coin, The Queen, the Dresser and the Wardrobe. I think I, I think that book came out in October of 2019. And I got that book for my mom for Christmas that year. Anyway, it was just announced that she is releasing an update to the best-selling book on May 12th in the UK, no word on US release date just yet, which details how Her Majesty handled life in lockdown, including who cut her hair. 
big hint. It was Angela Kelly herself that did so. So the update is coming out in honor of the Platinum Jubilee and will feature new photography and other updates since the book came out in late 2019, like Prince Philip's funeral and what happened behind the scenes of the Queen's first engagements post-COVID lockdown. The original book had some really juicy nuggets in there, like respectfully juicy. Does that make sense? Like classy, juicy, right? You're like, you know, like not like salacious, but it's like, oh, wow, that's really interesting that her majesty organizes her day this way, or that she likes this type of alcohol or, you know, it was just, it was, it was obviously this has been approved by the queen. This is someone who's incredibly close to her. She knows the truth. She knows what's going on behind palace walls, but it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's so above board, if that makes sense. So I can't wait to get this update. Yeah, I mean, I that's so interesting. I feel like we um, hear a lot about what happened several years ago in the past, but to hear a little glimpse into really just like to your point, nothing, nothing like, you know, crazy gossip, just a glimpse into her life in the recent, you know, past few years as we've gone through this really weird time in the world. Um, that'd be so interesting to read about. I know. And like, it sounds like um, Miss Kelly was you know, up close and personal as she always is, even through COVID and the lockdown. So that I, I can't wait to learn the U.S. release date. But I want to go back for a minute to Her Majesty missing Royal Monty service. I think that we are going to see Her Majesty virtually as a lot. Like we've seen her on Zoom a lot this week, but in person, I think that it's really going to be a lot of Charles and other royals stepping in for her in person. She will, I believe, be at, of course, the major events for the Jubilee coming up before we know it. We'll blink and it'll be here. But I think that this is going to be, she. Uh, she's not stepping down. She's made that very clear that this is a lifelong position. And I do believe that she will die on the throne. However, she will do virtual engagements, but I think a lot of the in-person stuff is going to be very intentionally and carefully chosen. And if and when she can, even though this service means a a lot to her, I know it does, that she will have Charles step in for her most of the time. I think this is the way forward. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is part of a, a bigger plan to gradually, you know, shift more responsibility on him and help prepare him for the role. I don't think she has an intention of stepping away. Um, And I do think it's great that we're able to have these virtual engagements because it does allow her to have a little bit more um, FaceTime, you know, with other people and to continue with engagements without the, um, you know, added stress of having to go out physically in person to a lot of these. And she's able to um, kind of gradually transition to a slower pace. So Mm -hmm. um, I think you're right. Yeah. And I, I just, I think how, how special it is really to have, because Charles has been in essentially a 73 and a half year apprenticeship, the longest apprenticeship of all time, I would say. And it's nice to be able to, it's actually, I mean, I miss seeing the queen, of course, at all of these traditional events we see her at every year, but it's nice to kind of watch the transition happen because it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. Obviously we don't want her reign to ever end, but I think actually when her reign does end, seeing Charles at a lot of these events, like we've um, 
heard that he might be opening parliament for her on May 10th. That's, you know, we'll see what happens there, but um, it's, it kind of will make that transition easier when it does happen, because we are going to, I believe, get used to seeing him at so many of these events that she's been forefront at for 70 years. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's move into topic two. I can't wait to talk about this. We, this is, this obviously is a hit with all of you because on our Instagram, this photo we put up about this topic got over 600 likes, which is, I, I would wager the biggest number of likes we've ever had on an Instagram photo. So topic two, Netflix is casting the Kate Middleton character for the crown. So again, we posted this on our Instagram the other day, Netflix's The Crown is casting a college-aged Kate Middleton for its final season, season six, which covers the late 1990s and early 2000s. And William, of course, met Kate as a student at St. Andrews University in Scotland from 2001 to 2005. There is also a casting call out for a William and a Harry from the same time period. I think it's interesting that in that casting call, they specifically say no acting experience necessary. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like these roles won't have a lot of speaking parts, but they're just looking for someone that physically resembles them. Um, So this excites me to know in we are officially getting a Kate Middleton character on the crown. So I'm, I'm wondering who do you think is the perfect fit for the role? Well, your, your mention of, you know, needing prior acting experience is kind of in line with some of what I was thinking. I I don't know that it will be a known person Mm -hmm. um, that they pick for this, but this is an interesting question. And it's something I've not really thought about before now, you know, off the top of my head, I I really didn't have an answer. So I started Googling Kate Middleton doppelgangers the other day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've got a list here we can kind of discuss. Um, I will say though, most of these women listed here are all like mid 30s early 40s um so they're close to Kate's current age um so I I doubt they'll be a great fit for a college age Kate but I do think it would be interesting to talk about her celebrity look like so the first one that kept popping up a lot was Anna Kendrick now I think with the right hair color and in the right makeup it could potentially work I don't know are you do you see that one at all I could see it I could see that you like you said though we want to cast for a Kate of 2022. And we have to remember, like, I just, I have to insert this here that folks were commenting on our Instagram, which of course we love, but they were like, Kate, you look so good here. You know, wear this dress. I'm like, y'all, this photo is from 2002. Like, this is a long (laughs) time ago. She doesn't look like that anymore. None of us looked in 2002. So, I mean, I, but yes, I think, I think that Anna Kendrick could work for sure. Um, so the other one that came up a lot was, uh, this is kind of strange too, it's uh, Zoe Deschanel. I mean, obviously this is Zoe Sands Bangs. Um, I'm not totally convinced her facial features are the right match, but I will say, listeners, if you've never seen Zoe Deschanel without her bangs, go Google it because in my opinion, she looks like a totally different person. Mm. Um, but I guess I could, I guess I could, I, I, not, not the best match. Maybe I could see it, but. Yeah, I, I could know. see it. I could see it. Okay, so the next one I thought was actually a pretty good match, and that was Katie Holmes. This one kept popping up. I'm not sure about current Katie, but Katie back in the day actually would make a great Kate Middleton back in the early 2000s. Um, They actually, when I saw some side-by-side photos, I was like, okay, I really can see this one. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, 
I'm looking at this photo on our Instagram because I'm going to read in a second what our listeners said, but looking at this photo of Kate, I mean, she still looks like herself, you know, she, she looks a little bit younger, you know, I mean, this is like 20 years and three kids later and a whole lot of Royal stress later, but I mean, yeah, you could cast a Katie Holmes in there and make it work for sure. So the other two that kept coming up a lot were um, Anne Hathaway and Lauren Conrad, but I don't really think either one of these look that much like Kate when you really look at their facial features. And mm, yeah, uh, I really don't even think of Lauren Conrad as an actress outside of, not. <laughs> you know, outside of reality TV. <laughs> I think this would be Lauren's first acting role, and that would be a very ambitious first acting role for Lauren. <laughs> Unless so you want to count the hills, which who knows how much of that was scripted, but anyway. Right. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what came up when I looked. I thought it was interesting, um, even if it was just kind of fun to go look at some side by side photos of Kate and other celebrities. Yes. Well, if you're if you heard me clicking around a moment ago, I pulled up our Instagram and I want to tell you what some of our listeners said. So one of our listeners suggested Emma Watson. So that would be okay. that would be interesting. Um, let's see. There's a lot of people saying she looks beautiful. Emma Mackey, I'm going to be honest with you. This, oh, this is from our friends T and a buddy who were our very first guests so long ago. Um, I, don't know, I don't know who Emma Mackey is. And I feel like I'm pretty pop culture with it. I don't know who that is. Um, so I don't know. Do you know who Emma Mackey is? I need to, I need to look her up. Right now. Yeah. And then the other suggestion was Kate Beckinsale. So I, um, I think Kate Beckinsale is an extraordinarily beautiful woman as well. I don't know. And I really think you might not be wrong. Like, I think it could be someone that we've never heard of, and this could be maybe their breakout role. Okay. So Emma Mackey, um, is a French British actress. Um, she landed her breakthrough role as Maeve Wiley on the Netflix comedy drama series, Sex Education. I'm reading this off of Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. I, okay. 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 Yeah. 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 Okay. Now I'm Googling her and yeah. Yeah. She, she's earned a BAFTA award. Um, she's, uh, currently 26. So, um, I could, I could see this. I'm looking at her Wikipedia page right now. That was one that. And a buddy coming through with the win. (laughs) Well, we shall see, but now that we know that there will be a Kate Middleton, I'm even more excited for season six, which we won't get for quite some time, but I'm excited. Yeah, me too, for sure. Um, So we'll go into our next topic. Um, We actually learned this week that Megan has left her work with Mayhew, one of the four organizations she selected to become her patronages in 2019. Um, Mayhew, Mayhew, I'm sorry, is an animal welfare charity. And they said last Wednesday in a statement, our royal patronage with the Duchess of Sussex came to an end at the beginning of the year. It's been an incredible privilege for Mayhew to have worked closely with Megan the Duchess of Sussex, since 2019 when she became our patron. Megan had continued to support Mayhew even after stepping back as a working royal in January 2020. So for her part, Megan said, though my time as patron of Mayhew has come to a close, my unwavering support has not. I encourage each of you to support in whatever way you are able. The emotional support of a rescue animal is unparalleled. As you'll soon realize, it is not you who saves them. It is they who save you. And I think anyone who has a dog or who has loved a dog can agree with that statement. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, you and I are both dog lovers and I have a 
dog and um, they are definitely special little friends in, in our lives. So without them. that's right. Speaking of Megan, it was confirmed yesterday that she'll be joining Harry in the Netherlands for Invictus Games, which kick off this weekend in The Hague. Um, definitely expect coverage of the Invictus Games in our next episode. Are you excited for that, Rachel? I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So I think listeners know, and I know you know that um, I'm the editor of What Megan Wore, and, you know, we don't ever post anymore because we don't ever see what Megan wears. She, mm-hmm. she rarely is seen. And so we are gearing up to um, have a really busy weekend, which of course it's also Easter. I, I'm telling you, <laughs> this is not picking on the Sussexes, but they, they do a lot of things on holidays and weekends. So like their uh, second pregnancy announcement was on Valentine's day baby announcement was on a Sunday um, when Megan came out with that incredibly powerful New York Times essay about her miscarriage. It was the day before Thanksgiving. So it's just, and it's Easter this weekend. So it's always like we're, we're gearing up to do our biggest work on holidays and weekends. Happy to do it. Cannot wait to see her. Um, and I hope they bring the kids too. Do you think they do that on purpose? I don't know. I mean, that is, you know, just from a journalism and communications perspective, that is a really strategic choice because, you know, that, that is um, oftentimes when news kind of dies, right? Like on weekends and especially if you've released something on a Friday. Um, But I don't know. I think, um, you know, I mean, the baby announcement, the baby was born on Friday. They announced it two days later. I don't think they could have chosen when the baby was born. Um, I don't know. I, it might be a total coincidence, but um, whatever it is, they keep us on our toes and I love it. And I'm so excited to see her. And I, like I said, I hope they bring the kids and I hope that we just have a really feel good time in the Netherlands with the family. Yeah, I am looking forward to this year's event. And I actually went out on the Invictus Games website to look around. Um, And so I noticed the Invictus Games logo, you know, they highlight the I am. Um, I just wanted to point this out for listeners if you haven't gone and taken a look at the the logo. So I am is highlighted and their slogan is we came, we saw, we're unconquered. And Invictus Mm -hmm. actually means unconquered. So I thought it was a cool logo and, and a fun slogan to go along with the name. If you haven't seen that already, go check it out. But in my digging around, I also found out that the 2023 Invictus Games will be held in Dusseldorf, Germany. Um, I don't know if I already knew that. I was trying to think, had we covered that or talked about that? I I couldn't remember. Um, But I thought they, I feel like, I don't know if we've covered it on the show. I feel like they announced that some time ago because this, this, uh, location in the Netherlands was supposed to happen in 2020. So right. this has been pushed back and pushed back. So, um, I mean, I think I did know that, but I don't think we've talked about it on the show. Well, it's a great time to plan your next trip to Germany um, and and price out plane tickets. If you... Or my first trip to Germany in my case. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. I mean, I just, you know, I, I hope my dream for the Invictus Games is that they you know, treat it kind of like a mini royal tour and we see them in lots of, well, see them. I mean, Harry, love your fashion, but I'm talking about Megan and lots of looks and, you know, I just, I'm, I'm really excited. It makes my what Megan wore heart really happy. All right, let's move into topic four. Anne is on tour. So the royal family 
marked the one-year anniversary of Prince Philip's death last Saturday privately, but his only daughter, Princess Anne, was, as usual, at work, touching down in Australia alongside husband Timothy Lawrence for her two-leg tour on behalf of her mother, Queen Elizabeth, and her Platinum Jubilee. Anne spent three days in Australia before heading off to the second leg of the tour in Papua New Guinea, and she'll spend two days there, and I believe she's still there today, which is Tuesday. Yeah, and you know, Anne is so under the radar, She, but she still remains the backbone of the working core of the royal family and is such a stable anchor. So I got on um, the Court Circular, which is on the Royal Media Center. It tells about all the different engagements royals have coming up. I was starting to look for when I'm in London in July. Um, not a lot of events and engagements are posted for that time period yet, but I want to stalk a royal or two. So I wanted to kind of see like where they might be. And Anne, so Anne's title is the Princess Royal. If you go on the Court Circular, I'm telling you almost every engagement is the princess royal, the princess royal, the princess royal. She is such a workhorse. And I love that. And, you know, her tour is flying really under the radar. I mean, I have really heard, I, I, I really had to do some digging to find anything about what she's doing, but it's such a contrast to the Cambridges tour, which got so much press attention. I just feel like Anne is there to do the job, you know, no muss, no fuss. Yeah. Yeah. She is definitely a very hard worker. So also in royal tour news, Charles and Camilla announced this week that they will head off to Canada in May for the continuing Platinum Jubilee tour. They will be there three days, and this is their first time back to Canada since 2017. Charles has visited Canada 19 times, Mm. and Camilla has visited five. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office said he and wife Sophie are looking forward to showing them some of the many reasons why we take pride in being Canadian and that the tour will be an opportunity for their royal highnesses to take part in various initiatives to honor the Queen's service and dedication to our country and meet with inspiring Canadians who are making a difference in our communities. So Canada, of course, has been one of the British royal family's strongest allies globally. What no one's talking about as Anne is in Australia is that Australia has very vocally said that they are looking to also no longer have the queen as head of state so this visit is very important she's on a very important visit in australia canada has never to my knowledge raised those concerns and so they definitely show no signs of of removing the queen as head of state so it's a bit of again a bit of an easier assignment for uh, charles and camilla which is which is you know makes makes one scratch their head but um Anne is out there doing great work in Australia and Papua New Guinea and hopefully um, hopefully keeping Australia around. I don't know. I mean, if that's the right thing for Australia, but um, so we're, we, and of course we've got um, Sophie and Edward going on tour later this month. We'll cover that in future episodes, but uh, the Royals are out there again and I love to see it. Yeah. You know, I always think of Canada when I think of the Commonwealth, probably because it's so close to our home uh, in the U.S., but it is one of the first countries that come to my mind. And listeners might remember Justin Trudeau was actually in England visiting the Queen recently, and Mm -hmm. their relationship goes back, you know, a really long way. Canada is also where Meghan and Harry stayed briefly before they moved to the U.S. Um, So it got me thinking, Rachel, I don't think I know this. Have you ever been to Canada? 
haven't. No, I have not. And I, and I really want to, because they're, um, you know, I do some fashion writing and there's a brand Sintler who is, uh, really well, listeners will recognize them. Kate's worn their coats, Megan's worn their coats. And, um, I want to go visit Sintler's headquarters in, um, in Toronto. I actually have my very first Sintler coat. I'm looking at it right now and it's hanging. I mean, I don't need it anymore. It's April and it's getting hot here, but it's made of Peruvian alpaca. And I'd love to see that, you know, that process being made, but no, I've never been. And of course, you know, Megan lived in Toronto for many years while filming suits. So I know Canada has a really special place in a lot of Royals hearts. That's where Kate and William went on their first Royal tour after they got married, where Kate wore the cowboy hat. Remember that? (laughs) And William too, William too. So yeah, Canada is really special to the family, but I've never been there. Have you? I have not. No, it's also a place I've wanted to go. My mom actually lived there briefly when she was growing up. Um, But um, it's so beautiful. I've seen so many pictures and it just seems like it would be a a really beautiful place to, to visit. Yeah, absolutely. It's on the, it's on the list for sure. It's on the list. So let's do a brief uh, segment three Royals around the world before we hop into our really great interview with Tom Quinn. So a week or two ago, the women of the Swedish Royal family released new portraits, tiaras and all, and the tiaras came out again on April 6th at Stockholm Palace. We saw Princess Victoria, Princess Sophia, Queen Sylvia, and more wear ball gowns and tiaras for the family's first gala dinner since 2019. Normally, their representation dinners, as they're called, are held a couple of times a year, but hashtag COVID ruins everything. However, like so many other royal traditions, the representation dinners are back in action. And as the kids that are much younger than me say, we love to see it. I think that's the second time I've said that this episode, so I feel really cool. (laughs) Really hip. (laughs) So So not hip and not cool if we have to say that we are hip. I am not (laughs) hip and not cool at all. I readily admit that. (laughs) Well, we've also talked about Japan's former princess Mako pretty frequently in this segment, and she has a new job we'd like to tell everyone about, serving as assistant curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in her new home base of New York City. Now known as Mako Camero. I'm not, I hope I said that right. I'm not sure if I did. Um, Okay. Okay. Mako left the Japanese royal family to marry her college boyfriend and now husband Kai Kamuro, a commoner. Because he is a commoner, Mako was forced to choose love over her title. And she even turned down the $1.3 million payout offered to Japanese royal women who lose their title upon marriage. So that really sounds like true love to me. Yep. That's true love right there. They, they met in college and, you know, she, left everything to follow him to as he becomes a lawyer in New York City and I'm so happy to see her thriving um she she seems to really just be I almost said kicking a but we don't really curse on this show so killing it is what I'll say she's killing it out there so love that too and uh, she just remains one of my favorites because love in my heart I'm a romantic love always wins and love always trumps over everything so 
Well, as I said at the top of the show, as opposed to last week's mammoth episode, this was a pretty light load this week. You and I are going to be traveling. Um, So Jessica booked a trip out of the country. I copycatted her and booked the essentially same trip to the same place (laughs) just two weeks later. So um, we're going to be kind of here, there and everywhere the next couple of weeks. But before we go, we want to have you meet Tom Quinn, who um, we actually interviewed him on March 28th. So keep that in mind. That was the day before Prince Philip's service of Thanksgiving and the scandal with Andrew. And Tom's book about scandals goes all the way back in royal history. And that's especially poignant when we learned this week that the crown is actually developing a prequel series about scandals before Queen Elizabeth II's reign. So Tom's book is literally coming out at the perfect time. Take a listen to our conversation with him. We are excited to have on the show today, Tom Quinn, author of Scandals of the Royal Palaces, an intimate memoir of royals behaving badly. He is the author of several bestsellers like Kensington Palace, an intimate memoir from Queen Mary to Meghan Markle, and Mrs. Couple, Mistress to the King. As we know, the royals are not without scandal, and we're thrilled to talk to him today about some of them. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for asking me on. It's an honor to have you here. So first of all, I love the title, Royals Behaving Badly. That is so compelling. So you are a longtime royal author. Why did you initially decide to write this book? What was the spark that lit the flame here? Well, I think when I look, when you look back at the history of the royal family, the, the idea, they, as you say, they have been involved in lots of different scandals. But I thought what was most interesting is how various scandals in the past involving the royal family, they can look very different from the perspective of history. I mean, I'll give you an example. When, for example, um, Ed, Edward II was, um, was persecuted because, because he was gay, uh, and eventually he was murdered because of his relationship with um, a male member of the court mm-hmm. at that time. And at the time, the, the great scandal was that he was having a love affair with a man. But when we look at it from, from this period, um, what looks terrible is that the poor man was murdered, basically, for being gay. And many other um, scandals, um, when they're looked at, you know, from the viewpoint of, of now, they can look very different. And uh, other scandals, I mean, the thing is about royal family and scandal, it's something that's always there in every age, even during Queen Victoria's reign, when there's this idea that, that you know, the whole of Britain, in fact, the whole of the empire, um, nobody ever had affairs, no, nobody ever behaved badly. There were no gay people. You know, that idea, even during Victoria's reign, there was this sort of underbelly of of scandal and I I just think it's such an interesting area because it's like the unofficial history of of a very famous institution. Yeah I I especially appreciate knowing about I mean we know about the scandals of today right like Prince Andrew and so on but but learning about that because of course there were scandals always but we just never heard about them prior to you know the the news media being maybe less forgiving and reporting more on on royal scandals so it's interesting to go far back in history on on the topic of scandal 
Yes, that's true. I mean, until really up until the permissive 1960s, as we've come to call them, the newspapers, certainly in Britain, less so in the United States, but certainly Britain, they very rarely mentioned anything that was critical or embarrassing for the royal family. And then suddenly that all changed. And I think one of the reasons for that was that before the 1960s, the, the, the big newspapers in the UK were owned by members of the aristocracy or by people who wanted to become members of the aristocracy. And so they didn't want to upset the royal family because they felt that was a, a good way to be accepted by them. Lord Northcliffe is a, is a famous example, you know. And then by the time the, the, the 1960s came along, they realised that the more important thing or certainly from, from the point of view of the newspaper owners, the more important thing was just to sell lots of newspapers. And as we all know, uh, royalty sells, stories about royalty always sell. And, and I think also um, many of the stories that on the, on the face of it are scandalous, actually often reveal the more human side of the royal family. I don't include Prince Andrew in that, but certainly with um, Diana Spencer, you know, the Princess of Wales, the late Princess of Wales, many of the, of the, of the so-called scandals that she was involved in actually uh, uh, did a lot to enhance her reputation because it made people realise that, you know, here was a young woman who was suffering and she may have behaved uh, from the royal family's view in, in a, a slightly scandalous way, you know, by having, after Charles um, went off with Camilla um, and Diana had a series of lovers, that, that from the royal family's point of view was scandalous. Mm -hmm. But for, for the rest of us, it kind of made, it, it enhanced um, Diana's reputation. So I think the great thing about scandal is it, it's many sides, many layered and it's many sided and it's not always... Um, it's not always a bad thing for, for a member of the royal family. It can, you know, actually do good things for them. Although, of course, the official view will always be that they're supposed to be very well behaved, come what may. Mm -hmm. In the book, you write, but dozens of other royal scandals have been covered up or to some degree by an establishment that is famous for its determination to keep royal secrets. Well, secret. Which of these scandals covered in the book was the most shocking to you? I think the fact that, um, well, there are two that I found really shocking. Um, one was um, the fact that uh, when Edward VII's, so that's the, queen, the current queen's great grandfather, when his eldest son, uh, Prince Albert Victor, who was, by the way, who would have become, who was, you know, who's due to become king, he was the heir to the throne, when he was implicated in, um, and this really was shocking for the Victorian era, he was implicated in um, a group of aristocrats who were visiting um, a homosexual brothel in North London. And what really shocked me about it wasn't the fact that um, there was an establishment cover-up, because there was, um, the newspapers weren't allowed to to mention this. Uh, there, there, there were there was no gossip about it. The whole establishment clamped down on this story. But what really shocked me about it wasn't that I could understand that they wanted to protect the heir to the throne. But when a few years later Albert Victor died from flu, so here we are, the, the heir to the throne dying from uh, from flu. Um, letters from senior officials in, in the royal family and connected with the royal family, which have only been revealed recently, there, there are these letters which, which basically say what a good thing it was that the heir to the throne died, because otherwise we'd have, we'd have had a king with this 
taint of homosexuality. And mm. I found that really shocking. And part of the same story that seems shocking now is that other uh, friends of, of Albert Victor who um, were also involved in this um, scandal of the homosexual brothel, they were allowed to quietly go and live abroad. In other words, they weren't prosecuted. And that included the Duke of Somerset's son, who was equerry to the, the, uh, the Prince of Wales, later Edward VII. They were allowed to go quietly and live in France in big houses and Italy on their estates, while the poor boys, these working class, very poor boys, who'd been working at the brothel, they were the only ones who were prosecuted. So that always seemed to me, I was really shocked by that. And also, another, I mean, Edward VII was, was an outrageous king. He used to refer to his wife as um, um, Edward VII, for anyone who doesn't know, was the, the heir to Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. He always referred to his wife as his brood mare, meaning <laughs> he only really wanted her because he knew he had to have an heir and have lots of other children. Wow. Um, yeah, and he just flaunted his, his mistresses. He appeared in public with them. Uh, he just didn't care. And on one occasion, it, it was um, he was accused. He got involved in a, um, a scandal because one of his close friends was getting divorced. And during the court case, he was asked, he was a witness in, in this case, and he was asked by, um, by counsel, uh, if he slept with a certain woman and he said he hadn't and, and it was commonly known that he he had slept with this woman so there we have the future king committing perjury which you know mm. as in as in the united states in the uk if you commit perjury it's an automatic prison sentence but you wow. know there's the future king allowed to get away with an with with perjury so i found that also deeply shocking hmm. well i also want to quote you and i i just, I love quoting authors to authors. You write, scandal in the royal family have always been strange and not so strange bedfellows and that members of the royal family find it impossible to resist the lure of flattery and personal power. Since they are often unhappy in their gilded cages, it is perhaps no wonder that down the ages, royal men and women have used their position and influence to get what they want, whether that be sex, drugs, or money, while hoping to maintain their reputations as moral leaders. So what key personality traits of someone in this position, meaning a royal, makes them susceptible to scandal does power generally equal scandal i think well you know that famous phrase that uh, power corrupts and an absolute power corrupts absolutely i uh -huh. think uh, the members of the british royal family perhaps especially the men they're in this unique position where centuries ago um they lost their political any real political power i mean the queen does have power but it, she really can't refuse to sign new bills into law she has to do that so they don't have political power and so over several generations being brought up as if they are these incredibly special people, it's like it sort of goes to their heads and, and they believe that they can do no wrong. And, and the, the power that was once exercised in the political sphere, they exercise in the personal sphere. So, you know, uh, Prince Andrew is a, is a classic example. You know, he just, I mean, every, I've spoken to several people who work for him and they say he was absolutely and is absolutely insufferable because he believes that he's super intelligent, 
that he, everything he does must be right because he does it. So it's it's the it's this upbringing, this rarefied upbringing mm -hmm. of wealth and privilege. So, you know, in a way, you have to be sympathetic to someone like Andrew because he was born into this. He never had to make any effort. He's been treated, you know, like an 18th century monarch, really, with footmen to look after him, teams of nannies when he was a baby, all this kind of thing. And I think in the end, when it can't be exercised in the public sphere, this enormous sense of entitlement that's built up because of their unique kind of upbringing, it comes out in really, really bad behavior where they basically control other people or, or they, you know, as in Andrew, they sleep with people because you know, they probably think that people are sleeping with them because they're wonderfully charming and handsome, but actually it's because they're using their power, their position as members of the royal family to get what they want. They have this assumption that if they want something, <laughs> they're entitled to have it. And I think it's uniquely because they are still brought up as if we were living in, I don't know, in the 18th century when uh, royals were above the law. And it, it comes as a great shock to them sometimes you know, as you know, if we remember when Andrew, apparently after Andrew's car crash of the TV interview, he spoke to other members of the family and said, I think that went really, really well. I <laughs> know, I, I just read a piece of Vanity Fair this month about that interview and other things with Prince Andrew. And um, he's, he's just completely delusional about <laughs> about his actions and about that, that interview in particular. He thought that went well, while the rest of the world says, that was everything he's doing is abhorrent. I yeah, mean, exactly. And, and it's because of this upbringing where, and it's particularly bad with Andrew because he was the queen's favorite. You know, she, he was always treated as if, you know, the family treated him as if he was a god. And so, you know, he turned into a kind of monster. And as you rightly say, you know, he was so lacking in self-awareness that yeah. you couldn't even see that that interview was a bit of a disaster. But the same thing does affect other members, not to the same extent. If you take, for example, Prince Harry, you know, he didn't make a big effort at school. He didn't, he's never made a big effort. He was almost waiting for, for a strong woman to come along and whisk him off his feet, which is what happened because when, you, when you're born in the royal family and you're not the heir, you're the spare, as it were, um, you're, you're, you become a very passive kind of object. You believe that everything will come to you because mm. you're a member of the royal family, but it doesn't give you drive and ambition. Um, and I think that's another problem that's associated with growing up in this rarefied gilded cage. Tom, there's another book there, by the way, about the psychology of a spare. Um, whether it's Margaret or Andrew or Harry, that that's a book in and of itself. So, oh, definitely, I completely agree. In fact, actually, I'm I'm discussing um, such a book with with my publishers at the moment. Because, I want to I want to read that book because there's yeah. so much there. Yeah, it's so fascinating because the 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 spare always gets into trouble or finds life difficult or meaningless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're right that in the past, biographers and historians kept a lot of scandals secret, looking to uphold the dignity of members of the royal family by suppressing anything deemed to be damaging to their reputations. That's clearly changed. So when did this change occur? Well, it really began to change. I think in the 1960s, when uh, people began to criticize for the first time the amount of money spent by the government in the UK on the royal family, because it was realized that it wasn't just 
um, the working royals, the, the immediate and the royals we all know, the famous royals, the immediate family, we, it was suddenly realized that the, the taxpayer was, was paying for all sorts of distant relatives to live in 18th century splendor. And, and I think once people criticized both in the newspapers and increasingly on television and radio. Once they they criticised the rules and they realised that you know the, the world didn't come to an end, it, it became a bit of a free for all. Um, and I think um, then then uh, writers and especially writers, but also journalists, realised that you know this was very interesting. If you take Edward VIII, you know the the, the king who abdicated uh, for um, his well, she was to become his wife, Mrs. Simpson. Mm -hmm. It was only many years after he died that papers began to seep into the public domain that showed he was enormously sympathetic to the Nazis. Now, that would never have come out in the 1950s. And, and there's another scandal, for example, a newspaper dared, um, it was one of the very few times before the 1960s that a UK newspaper criticized a royal. It was so unusual. The, the newspaper printed an editorial saying that um, the uh, Edward VIII, before he was married to Mrs. Simpson, had slept with her. Now everyone knew that was true, but because he, he was the he was the king or had been the king, he sued the newspaper and won. And 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 really, the judge just said, "Well, he's he's you know he's the king or he's about to be the king, so he must we've got to accept his word, even though it was commonly known, of course, that he had slept." with Mrs. Sims long, many times before they were married. So I think it was that kind of deference that came to an end once people realized they could criticize and they wouldn't be, you know, imprisoned in the Tower of London. And from <laughs> then, you know, once you open the floodgates, everybody does it. Well, you just keyed up perfectly our next question. So look, there are far more scandals in this book than we have time to cover here. But in our year and a half of Podcast Royal of this show, we've never actually really talked about Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson, which I find that fascinating. So you write that Edward loathes the idea of being king, or rather he loathes the idea of being of not being king on his own terms. So you write he never actually expressed a desire to abdicate but he wanted Wallace to be his queen consort. And listeners, on the 1% chance you don't know the story of Edward and Wallace, just go look it up. He had short cliff notes. He abdicated his role as king to marry a twice divorced Wallace Simpson in 1936, which ultimately set up our queen to become queen. Forgive me for quoting you at length, but you write, one of the greatest mysteries about Edward VIII is that he could easily have chosen to remain king and with Wallace at his side as his mistress, but he insisted on marrying her. Why? His own behavior as a young man had shown he cared nothing for the sanctity of marriage. Before Wallace, as we've seen, he had a string of married lovers, and he was not bothered by the fact that their husbands were often his friends. Uh, talk about royals behaving badly. Um, back to you, but perhaps deep down, like the spoiled child he was, Edward wanted to marry Wallace because he had been told he could not. No one was going to tell him what to do or what not to do. He was king, and he would rule his private life absolutely. The abdication on this reading was a kind of gigantic tantrum. So I'd just love if you'd <laughs> unpack this for us, because shockingly, we've, as I said, never really covered this before on the show. Yes, um, it's a fascinating story. And, and, you know, as you've hinted, most of us know the, the bare bones of the story that, you know, it was the it was the king 
of England uh, uh, saying, I no longer want to be, be king unless I can marry the woman I love. Um, but when you look a bit deeper at, at papers that have trickled into the public um, domain over, only over the last 10 or 20 years, you realize that actually he was a, he was a far more damaged individual um, than uh, at first might seem to be the case. I mean, he almost behaved more as if he was the spare rather than the heir. Um, when he was before he met Mrs. Simpson, he'd had a string of mistresses, many of them, uh, as you've said, uh, married to his best friends. But that was that was the sport of the aristocracy. No one really minded if you slept, you know, if they slept with each other's wives. It was considered very bad form to make a fuss. So, so that's what when he was Prince of Wales, that's what uh, that's what Edward did. But he spoke often of the fact that he hated it. And I'm quoting him now. He said, I hate this princing business, which mm. meant, you know, going to things, opening hospitals, shaking hands, constantly traveling. He hated it. And the other thing was, although he um, enjoyed the company of his numerous mistresses before Mrs. Simpson, there was something about her that he felt he, because he didn't find it difficult to, to give up previous mistresses and move on to the next. But there was something about um, Mrs. Simpson. And I think the latest theory, and there's a lot in it, is that um, Mrs. Simpson was probably intersex, which is what we would now call intersex. And because um, there was something about Edward that he was attracted to, to men, but uh, because that was impossible, he was also attracted to men. There was something about the masculine side of, of Mrs. Simpson that really appealed to him, so he couldn't give it up. And I don't think, as many people have said, that he gave up his throne because she kind of was very controlling and forced him to do it. I don't believe that. I think he really did think, look, I'm not going to give this woman up because she's perfect for me. Um, and if they won't let me be, be king with her as my queen, then I will... I'll abdicate. And I think it's quite interesting because um, he could, there were other routes. He could have, they could, they could have had a, a, a marriage, which is something that uh, Prince Charles and uh, Camilla will have. I mean, she won't be, Camilla won't be queen. So today you can get around the problem that, you know, uh, Camilla is a divorcee. But back then, we were just at the beginning of that period. And I, I think Edward should have been braver and said, look, I'm really sorry, I'm not going to abdicate and I'm not going to give her up. And mm. there would have been constitutionally, there would have been nothing that could have been done. But because he had this, and he didn't like being king anyway, it sort of meant he could have the tantrum, um, stop being king. But the tragedy was that he thought, a bit like King Lear, you know, in King Lear, where he, mm -hmm. he gives his kingdom to his daughters, but sort of doesn't really realise that once you've given that away, you've got nothing to do. And that's the tragedy of King Lear. And it was also the tragedy of Edward VIII. He suddenly, I think he slightly thought that if he abdicated, somehow he'd still have a role which was nearly as good as being king, in, in, instead of which he became an exile. Um, so I, I think that's the, that's the tragic part of the story. It's, it, it was only partly the great romance of the 20th century. It was also mm. the great royal tragedy of the 20th century because he spent the rest of his life smoking himself to death twiddling his thumbs and very bored and sad. Yeah. Well, we tend to stick to more modern reporting on Podcast Royal, and your book also covers modern scandals from Andrew to Meghan to Charles and Diana. So which modern scandal is the most fascinating to you and why? 
I think because it, it sort of operates on, on a number of levels, I think the scandals surrounding Diana, I mean, you probably expected me to say Andrew, but he's such a, you know, died in the wool rogue. He's almost a bit, a bit of a, he's too obvious a choice. I think Diana, because um, as I mentioned earlier, when she got into trouble, she's one of the very few royals who got into trouble with the royal family who were very critical of her. Um, and, and yet, um, the public, whatever she did, whatever scandal she got involved in, um, the public were more and more on her side. You know, even when, you know, for example, she gave the famous interview to Martin Bashir, where she admitted, you know, that she she and Charles had broken down, they both had affairs. That whole thing was a massive scandal, but it didn't damage her reputation. It enhanced her reputation. Mm. So I think in many ways, that's the most fascinating uh, modern scandal, but also I think um, I think the complexities of the, the I'm not sure how scandal is the right word, for it, but you know the, the Harry going to live in America with an American divorcee that's a fascinating one too because it echoes in the royal family terrifyingly it has echoes of Edward VIII and Mrs Simpson the perception in the royal family from from people I've spoken to who are very close to. Um, the royal family, the senior members of the royal family, is that um, uh, that Harry has somehow—I don't really believe this—but Harry has been sort of whisked away. This this Harry's a little boy. The idea is that you know because of the shock, and one has some sympathy with this view—the shock of losing his mother when he was only twelve. Mm -hmm. um, he's never really grown up, and so the great scandal is that this this very determined, ambitious, really quite powerful. Uh, charismatic American woman has has made him leave the country and stop being a working royal. I mean, that is an extraordinary thing, you know, and every time they give an interview or they write another book, um, the, the royal family trembles because they don't know what new scandals will <laughs> will result. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and in, a, in another bit of there's nothing new under the sun in the past is prologue in writing about Charles II and his many mistresses. You write, if ever a king exercised his royal power to get what he wanted, that king was Charles II. The price Charles paid for his scandalous love life was that he inevitably became the, I mean, who does this sound like? The target of satire and jokes, which detracted from both his reputation and his effectiveness as king. Well, someday in the not too distant future, there will be a Charles III, who, at least when it comes to the latter part of that question, the same can be said about him. So you write in the book that scandal is, is like a snowball. It's difficult to rehabilitate a royal reputation. As Charles, hopefully in the far distant future, Charles becomes king. We're not ready for the queen to leave us, but it's going to happen someday. Has Charles rehabilitated his reputation? Well, I think Charles... Um... If anyone has been able, any royal has been able to do it, I think Charles has to a large extent managed to do it. And for one reason, if he'd gone from mistress to mistress after um, the split with Diana, I think, you know, his reputation would be irrecoverable. It would be a disaster. But because the perception is that actually he was almost forced for dynastic reasons by the family to marry um, Diana because he was forced to do that and he really all the time wanted to marry um, wanted to marry um, Camilla who he knew before um, Diana because of that I think people think well he's actually gone back to his first love you know he hasn't um, he hasn't become a kind of promiscuous 
um, a terrible promiscuous person. He's he's what he always was. He wanted one woman and he wanted to stay with that woman. And because um, Camilla uh, has that has given him that continuity, he's now seen as you know actually um, a very loyal kind of conventional um, king in waiting, which is what people people wanted. Scandals of the Royal Palaces, an intimate memoir of royals behaving badly is out April 5th. Thank you so much for being here today, Tom. We really appreciated talking with you. Yep, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks again to Tom Quinn for that awesome interview. Um, that was a really fun conversation that we had. I, mm -hmm. I love talking with him. Um, I know you did too, Rachel. Absolutely. He was great. Listeners, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast Royal. Email us at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com and please follow, rate, and review our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into episode 59 of Podcast Royal. Bye. Bye.